want to welcome all of our folks on, on YouTube this morning that are checking in with us. I'm sure my family's all on board. And today we're going to, you know, last week I gave you the outline of the book of Acts. <clears throat> and, uh, you know, I, I cannot emphasize enough how important this book is. Uh, probably the one key book in the Bible to put the Bible together. You, I, you know, I grew up in the age of the 70s and the 80s with the Baptist mindset mentality, you know, uh, of Baptist churches and Baptist preachers, and they all were the same. You know, most of them were trained out of, out of uh, Bible colleges, either at BBC, Tennessee Temple, or, you know, whatever. And they all followed the same mindset, and that was they knew absolutely nothing about the Bible. Some of them were good preachers. Most of them were not. But they all had one thing in common, and you could, you could get all of the Bible knowledge about the Bible out of all of their worlds and put it into a left eye of a blind mosquito. I mean, they were just absolutely ridiculously stupid when it came to the Bible. And the problem with that is <clears throat> that they infected generations. And what you're seeing today is really, in Christianity, is really no different from what was back in my day. <clears throat> and, um, you know, in the stupidity of, of, the, of the Bible in general, but certainly with the book of Acts. Uh, I am telling you, uh, it's just, it's to me now, so many years into it, it's comical. Uh, it's, you know, it's like the Three Stooges. But back in the day, you know, people, you know, people really looked to these guys for, for truth. And they didn't get it. <clears throat> And so I will try to point out as we go through here, uh, so if you run into it today, which you will, because the neo-evangelical crowd don't have a clue, and nothing's changed with the Baptist guys. I mean, uh, if you went to the average Baptist pastor and asked him about the book of Acts, he wouldn't, he wouldn't even know where to begin, much less be able to detail it out for you. So it's a thing where, <clears throat> you know, Lord had it in my world that he got me with the right people. Uh, who had the book of Acts in the right context. And so, you know, I, I give it to you as somebody else gave it to me. Now, the way we're going to approach this, because <clears throat> our goal is for you all to learn the book of Acts. So the way we're going to approach it is to a very simple, basic format. I showed you how the book of Acts last week breaks down into three sections or breaks down around two places. The first one is Acts chapter eight, uh, 7 and 8. There's a break there. And the other one is Acts chapter 19 and, uh, uh, excuse me, 20 and 21. There's a break there. So we're going to study this in sections. <clears throat> and I'm going to detach each section from the other section. We're going to attack that section. If you learn that section, uh, <clears throat> you, you know, you won't have to worry about learning the whole book of Acts as we put it together you'll have to learn just this first section. If you do your work on this and you learn this and you get the key places down <clears throat> and <clears throat> in all three sections, then at the end, you'll be able to bolt it together and be able to understand how the book of Acts flows. I've told you this many, 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 many times, and this is no mystery, <clears throat> that the book of Acts is a transitional book. There's three of them in the Bible. There's Matthew, there's Acts, and there's Hebrews. We've already come through Hebrews. I put Matthew at the, on the back burner because, you know, we, we've dealt with that a lot. And I want to, really wanted to get into the book of Acts. I think the rest of everything will make sense once we get into uh, the book of Acts. And so 
you know, it's a book that you're going to, if you're going to learn your Bible, you're going to have to get this book down. Uh, it's the key to everything in the New Testament. And when you don't, then, you know, you, you miss a lot of doctrines. And I showed you Thursday night <clears throat> how that Acts is not a book of doctrine. Doctrine in the sense of for the New Testament church. There's a lot of doctrine in it, but there's not any doctrine for the New Testament church until you get up to maybe Acts chapter uh, 20 in some places in that particular chapter. But, you know, fundamentally, Acts chapter 20 ends the book of Acts uh, as far as the book is concerned. The third section is Paul being in jail. So I'm not saying there's things you can't learn, but as I showed you Thursday night, there's five or six different ways that they're getting the Holy Spirit of God to book Acts. Nothing, nothing is solid in Acts and everything is fluid. And there's a reason for that. And the reason for that is found in the first seven chapters. And that is that, uh, you know, up to Acts chapter 7, as you're going to see here, <clears throat> it's still up in the air if the church age is going to come into play or not. Now, I'll be the first to tell you, I don't know what he would have done if that wouldn't have happened because obviously there's some things that have to happen because of the church age. <clears throat> but so I don't, I, all I can tell you is he would have had it worked out. The fact that he didn't reveal it to us is, is immaterial. In his mind, he knows what he would have done to accomplish all those things. You know, it's a lot like if the Jews would have accepted Christ either at John the Baptist or when he came, uh, what would have happened if there was no crucifixion? So it's a thing where, you know, and you don't, you, you actually have a little more light on that one than you do this one. Uh, but it, still, there's, there's no hard line to it because it didn't happen. It's a, lot like, it's a lot like Adam and Eve. If they wouldn't have sinned in the garden, what would have happened? Well, that was pretty easy in some respects too. But at the same time, you don't know for sure because it didn't happen. But I can assure you this, and this is where you got to rest. There's people out there in Christianity today, and they drive me nuts. But when you get to a place like these places, they always think they got the answer. <clears throat> and they're always coming up with a what, with, what if. And, of course, there is no what ifs here because you don't know. Anything that anybody would tell you is just pure speculation. Uh, because you, it didn't happen. So you don't know how God was going to do it. You might be able to see some things that will line up. But at the end of the day, you know, if you don't have a, a chain of evidence coming through that, that brings you to a conclusion, you don't really have anything. And that's why it's so vital to, uh, to learn the book of Acts because it's a book where nothing is in stone. Everything is fluid. And you see an actual transition uh, right before your eyes. And it doesn't get... It doesn't get actually settled, <clears throat> really, till Acts chapter 20. And so it's a thing where uh, here's what you got. And you want to remember this about the book of Acts. <clears throat> the book of Acts <clears throat> is built around four fundamental concepts. And the first concept will be in Acts chapter 1 and Acts chapter 2-7. And this is where he's going to the Jews that are at Jerusalem. And you got to remember that. And then we find from Acts chapter uh, 13 to Acts chapter 47, he's going to the Jews that are in Asia Minor. In other words, he's starting in Jerusalem and he's coming after the Jews. He's got to get the Jews the message. So if you put, if you put it like this, 
This is how I would put it into your Bible if you got to put it in there. Here is Jerusalem, and then it goes out from there to, uh, uh, it starts in Jerusalem, and it goes to the Jews of Asia Minor. Then it keeps going out here to the Jews uh, to the mainland of Europe. And then it keeps going out here till you finally get to the Gentiles because the Jews, uh, everybody has been reached as far as God is concerned and that's what he cares about. So you want to see that, that it starts in Jerusalem, it moves to the Jews in Asia Minor, and then through the missionary trips, he goes to the Jews of the mainland of Europe, and then uh, finally it winds up in Rome, and we're, you know, then it's off to the Gentile world. That is another little outline of the book of Acts. So you want to remember that. The book of Acts starts in a time period right after Christ's crucifixion. So in Usher's chronology, that would be chapter 1 would be 33 A.D. And it runs all the way up to around 63 A.D., which is the official, from the Bible standpoint, start of the church age. But <clears throat> the book of Acts itself uh, is, uh, is, is written, um, you know, it's written around 65 A.D., Luke is the author, and uh, so he writes this book, and uh, it, it covers the things that are happening, uh, and again, you got to look at the title. We call it the book of Acts. The true title is the Acts of the Apostles, what the apostles are doing in light of now that Christ has died on the cross and he has risen. So... That with that in mind, let's begin to let's begin to read down through here. It says, "The former treaty have I made, O uh, Theophilus, of all that Jesus began to both do and teach." So, the book that is going to deal with the things that Jesus did and the things that he taught, and so we're going to see this until the day in which he was taken up, after that he, through the Holy Ghost, had given commandments unto the apostles whom he had chosen, to whom also showed himself alive after his passion of many infallible proofs, being seen of them forty days, and speaking of the things pertaining to the kingdom of God. Now that's very important because this shows you his mindset, The Jews, you're going to see here in a moment, the Jews are concerned about, is he going to bring the kingdom to Israel? That's the kingdom of heaven. But these 40 days that he's on earth, he's speaking things of the kingdom of God. In other words, he can go either way here. This is what a lot of people have a tough time with. They try to put God in the same box that they put everything else in in life. God has always has the options to do whatever he wants to do because we don't understand it. Many times we don't accept it or we don't believe it. Uh, and we think that God is locked in to what he's going to do. And that is never, never true. God is never locked into what he is going to do when it comes to his plan for uh, establishing his kingdom. And uh, so if you notice there at the end of verse 3, and verse 3 is basically a little introduction. Then we start, uh, we start, the, uh, we start the, uh, the actual thing here 
um, verse 4, and being assembled together with them, Christ with the apostles, commanded them that you not depart from Jerusalem, but wait for the promise of the Father, which saith, you have heard of me. Now, the, he's telling them not to depart from Jerusalem. Now, even though he's speaking the things of the kingdom of God, he's telling them not to depart from Jerusalem because if the Jews accept him as the Messiah through what's going to follow, everything's going to unfold in Jerusalem. And under the promise of that was given them, and of course that promise is the promise of the coming Holy Spirit of God. Now, here's another thing you want to remember about the book of Acts in first seven chapters, anyhow, and we talked about this Thursday night. Thursday night was a great intro to my intro, so to speak. And that is the fact that you want to remember that he's not revealing to anybody exactly what he's doing. So everybody's in a state of flux. The apostles are certainly in a state of confusion, as were probably most of the people. They were expecting a king. He was preaching the coming kingdom. And now suddenly, this is why the apostles get fall into such disarray. I mean, I know we, we clobber them all the time for a lack of faith and departing and leaving the Lord. I get that. But you've got to put yourself into their position in a historical context. They have been told for three and a half years that he was going to bring the kingdom and he was the king. And they believed that. He was. But they did not see the crucifixion coming. They knew the Old Testament passages and they knew that when he showed up, he was going to bring in the kingdom. Well, suddenly, that all goes to pieces. Suddenly, they're in a real flux. Suddenly, they're really now confused because what they were told was going to happen is now not happening. And they've actually seen him being taken now, being betrayed. They've seen him crucified. And now they're in fear for their own lives. So you've got to understand where they are coming from. And I guarantee you the one watchword through Acts chapter 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, with not only the apostles but also the Jews is mass confusion. And they are they're confused because things didn't work out the way that they did. And he doesn't run in and tell him. Now, that's a great, that's a great lesson for all of us. If you don't mind me injecting some spiritual things into this, that's a great lesson from all of us. Sometimes when you life and my life and it get really confusing and it really gets chaotic, he won't tell you exactly what's going on. You're going to have to stay and go with what you know and stay focused on where you're going. And in time, as here, it'll get revealed to you. And that's so important because that's exactly uh, the, the message that you get out of this and you see here as uh, he's, uh, he's laying all this thing out. They're asking questions. They're not getting any answers because he's not ready to reveal exactly what he's going to do because he's waiting to see what Israel is going to do. Now, I know. Somebody's going to say, well, did, you, did he not know what Israel was going to do? Surely he did. Obviously he did. Did he not know that Adam and Eve was going to sit in the garden? Surely he did. Did he not know where Adam and Eve were when they were hiding in the bushes when he came back? Sure he did. God always gives us the chance to do the right or the wrong thing without intervention. And obviously, he wants us to do the right thing, but either way, he has a course of action. 
He's got a plan for every one of you. If you don't do that plan, you're the one that loses. I know that we say this all the time. Even I say it. And it's true to a degree probably, but it makes great preaching, you know, if it's not 100% true. It's a thing where I always say all the time, you know, if you don't do what's right, somebody else is going to pay the price for it down the line. And, of course, that is, that's not actually always true. Now, it may be true with your children because you have direct control over them. And as arrows are in the hands of a mighty man, so are children of the youth. Wherever your children are today is where you're at spiritually, no matter what you think you know about the Bible or how spiritual you think you are. You see, we're under that spirit of falsehood. But it's not exactly always true when it comes to the people you work with or this or that. Because you know what? God wants to use you. But for God's plan to be accomplished, he doesn't need you. We need him. And when we need him, then he works through us. But if he don't work through you to get it to somebody, then he'll work through somebody else. You see that in our own church. You know, I've got parents that, are, that, that were in our church at one time that are no longer in our church who are the biggest gospel zeros on the planet Earth. And uh, it was the fact where they have, they have lost their kids. Uh, their kids want nothing to do with them. The kids want nothing to do with church, even though they still think that they're spiritual, you know, and they're, they're, they're under that spiritual falsehood. But yet, here's a case where the parents have failed royally. And yet, in each family, you're going to find, in, in some cases, that God will use some of you. He'll use this church to rescue somebody out of that mess, even though the parents didn't do what was right. So, I mean, that, this is how it works. <clears throat> so, he's not giving them everything that they want. And I'm telling you, when you and I go through some tough times, you don't always get the answers right away. And you have to be patient with that, and you rely on what you have seen him do. Now, I'm not saying the apostles didn't do that here. They follow what they did know, and I'll show you that in a moment. But the bottom line is, for you and for me, we need to stay with what we know. Keep doing what we're doing. And in time, God will reel it out. There's no, there's no reason ever for a Christian to hit the panic button. You just let God be God, and you know that he's come through all through this. And if he's not revealing what you're going through for any reason, he will. And you just got to be patient with it. So you need to see that. <clears throat> and being assembled together with them, commanded them that they should not depart from Jerusalem, but wait for the promise of the Father, uh, which he uh, saith, ye have heard of me. <clears throat> Uh, for John truly baptized with water, but ye shall be baptized with the Holy Ghost not many days hence. And of course, this is the, this is the promise of John chapter 16 uh, on the coming of the Holy Spirit of God. Verse 6, when they therefore were come together, they asked him saying, Lord, now here it comes. Here's the, fir- here's the most important question in these first seven chapters. And you've got to get this one down. When they therefore were come together, they asked him, saying, Lord, wilt thou at this time restore again the kingdom to Israel? Now, now keep in mind, they were sent out in Matthew chapter 10 and told to preach the kingdom. They were told not to go to the Gentiles, but to the lost sheep of Israel. A lot of things have happened since that time. They know now, because of the crucifixion, that 
the kingdom is not going to come the way they thought it was going to come. And obviously they couldn't see in the Old Testament the things that would have shown them that, but that's okay, no problem. But now they're asking, based on this side of the cross, are you going to restore the kingdom to Israel at this time? In other words, they're saying, uh, is there still going to be a second coming and a millennium? And uh, are, you going to, are you going to do for Israel what you said you were going to do? Now look at his answer, verse 7. And he said unto them, it is not for you to know the times of the seasons which the Father hath put in his own power. Now, the key word in that verse is times and the seasons. And you'll find that phrase used all the way through the Bible in relationship to the second coming of Christ. And uh, it's a thing where it's key. But what he's saying there is that it, he, he doesn't answer them. He says, right now, it's not for you to know. And I'm not going to tell you. Uh, but ye shall receive power. After that, the Holy Ghost has come upon you, and ye shall be witness unto me both in Jerusalem and Judea and in Samaria and the uttermost parts of the world. Now, there's that secret. There's that, excuse me, there's that, that, that circle I drew on the board. It starts in Jerusalem. It goes to Judea. It moves into Samaria, and then it goes to the ends of the earth. There's the cycle of the book of Acts. This is the transition right here. It starts in Jerusalem, and it winds up by the end of the book of Acts, chapter 20, to the ends of the earth. This is where it goes. This is how it goes, and this is the way that it works itself through. Now, but ye shall receive power after that the Holy Ghost has come upon you, and you shall be, be witnesses unto me both in Jerusalem and in Judea and in Samaria and the innermost parts of the earth. And when he had spoken these things, while they beheld, he was taken up, and a cloud received him out of their sight. Now, verse 9 and 10 is another incredible, incredible, incredible key. Verse 10, Now, while they looked steadfastly toward heaven, he went up, and behold, two men stood by them in white apparel, which also said, Ye men of Galilee, why stand ye gazing up into heaven? The same Jesus which ye have taken up uh, into heaven shall come in like manner as ye have seen him go into heaven. Now, the key here is, is the, the cloud. Anytime you find a cloud in the Bible, cloudy day, you want to stop and watch. I, I'm not going to say 100% of the time, but I probably should. But I will say 99.9. I can't think of one now where it isn't, but there's probably one in here. But anyway, 99% of the time, it'll be a context of the second coming of Christ. He goes up in a cloud, and he's coming back in a cloud. And uh, that's why in the book of Joel, um, which is all dealing with the second coming of Christ, it's on a cloudy day. And uh, it's one of those things where this is what you always want. These are key words in the Bible, and you find them. Now, the other thing in here um, is that these two men, and I'll tell you right out of the chute, for an absolute definitive, there's no way to know who these two men are. But if we're going to follow the Bible, and this is what a lot of things in the Bible come down to this. Personally, in my own mind, I have no doubt who they are. I would not be dogmatic about it because of the fact that there's no direct verse that says it, but the evidence is so clear here 
from everything you found from Matthew to the Old Testament to the book of Revelation that these two guys most likely are Moses and Elijah. And it's Moses and Elijah that were prophesied to come with him at the second coming. And what you have here of him going up and then told to come back is the second coming being laid out to them. So in Matthew chapter 17, where Christ is transfigured, he goes beyond the cross and he's glorified like he will be at the second coming. Guess who's there? Moses and Elijah are the two witnesses that come back uh, before the notable day of the Lord in a tribulation period. So uh, in my mind, and I don't, you know, I don't pose my beliefs on anybody if you can't put a connection line to it, but this one here, as far as I'm concerned, that's who it is. <clears throat> but if somebody else wanted to make it Zacchaeus and Herod, I'm okay with that too. It's a thing, but uh, it's a it's. It, but the, the the chain of evidence would support that it would be those two guys. But you know, you have to you have to figure that out for yourself. Which also said, "You men of Galilee, why stand ye gazing up into heaven? The same Jesus, which is taken up to you into heaven, shall come in like manner." Uh, as you have seen him go into heaven. Then returned they unto Jerusalem from uh, the mount called Olives, which is uh, from Jerusalem, a Sabbath day journey. And when they were come in, they went up into the upper room where abode both Peter and James and John, Andrew, Philip, and Thomas, Bartholomew, and Matthew, James, the son of Alphaeus, Simon, uh, Simon Zealots, and Judas, the brother of James. Uh, these all continued in one accord in prayer and with supplication with the women and Mary, the mother of, of Jesus, uh, and, uh, and with his brethren. Uh, and in those days, Peter stood up in the midst of the disciples and said, the number of the names together were about 120. Now, the first thing I want you to see here, the first guy who steps on the podium is Peter. And there's a reason for that. In Matthew chapter 17, Peter was given the keys to the kingdom of heaven. Now, he opens, the, he uses those keys all the way through Acts chapter 1 through 7 in a series of five messages. And you're going to see that he, 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 he begins to do that. And this is where he is using the keys of the kingdom of heaven. So he is, he is the main guy. If you want to take it a little bit further, Peter is the apostle to the Jews, where Paul is the apostle to the Gentiles. So Peter has the keys to the kingdom of heaven. Paul has the keys to the kingdom of God. And that's basically how you want to remember it. Now, verse 15. And in those days, Peter stood up in the midst of the disciples and said the number of names together were about 120. All right, mark this in your Bible. This is message number one. This is where he preaches his first message. You're going to notice here that there isn't anything remotely connected to the Gentiles. No church. And, you know, for whatever, you know, for time and eternity, Baptist preachers have always looked at Acts chapter 1 through 7 like it was our church age. And, uh, and, and honestly, yeah, I, you know, I know, I know there's things that we can read in the Bible and we miss and we just get a little out of whack with. I get that. I mean, I do that. You do that. But I got to tell you how any man who claims to have any IQ above subplant life could read Acts chapter 1 to 7 and think in any way, shape, or form by reading it and 
understanding what he's reading, how this could have anything to do with our church age. Uh, It's beyond me. This is proof positive what I've tried to tell you many, many times, that when a man goes to a Bible college or a woman, you buy the Bible college, not the Bible. You throw out the Bible and you accept as your final authority the Bible college. And that's just what happens. And it comes to a point in time, I, I've, known, I've known so many young men and young ladies who went to Bible college believing the Bible and came out not believing it. Why? They traded it. They traded it what they had for something that is not real, uh, but they, were, they bought a bill of goods. And it's, 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 if you're not smarter than the problem, I mean, it's very impressive. You get all these people around here believing that these doctors and all these guys know so much about the Bible, and so you fall into that trap. And, of course, uh, you know, that's just not true. And so it's a thing where when you come down through here, uh, Peter gets up and he begins to preach, and he isn't preaching anything remotely. And I'm going to point them out to you as we go through here, and if you've got a yellow China marker or a red China marker, you need to at least outline them and so you, they pop out at you. But here's what he says, verse 16. First is this, men and brethren. Well, that answers it. The brethren here are Jews. There isn't one Gentile that is not a Jewish proselyte under an Old Testament scenario <clears throat> anywhere within 150 light years of this. Men and brethren, this scripture must needs have been fulfilled which the Holy Ghost by the mouth of David spake before concerning Judas, which was guide to them that took Jesus. That'll be Psalms 41, verse 9, if you don't have that in your Bible. For he was numbered with us and obtained part of this ministry. Now this man purchased a field with a reward of iniquity, and falling headlong he burst asunder in the mist, and all his bowels gushed out. Now, this is kind of something you got to put together here based on the verse back here in, uh, uh, you know, uh, uh, Matthew 27, verse 51 through 52 or 3, and then what you got here. Back in Matthew, it just simply says that he went out and hung himself. Well, he obviously hung himself from a tree. And what probably happened most, because here it says that, I mean, here it says that, uh, uh, and falling headward, he bust asunder in the mist and his bowels gushed out. So probably what happened, if you put it together, he goes out and hangs himself. He's on a hill someplace or up high someplace. And when Christ gets crucified, we know there's earthquakes. The earthquakes, the whatever he hung himself, the tree probably falls over. He goes down over the cliff and hits the rocks and his bowels gush out. That's probably the best case scenario. But either way, he hangs himself on a tree and his gals, gals, his bowels gush out uh, at some point um, as he falls headlong. So there's your scenario. I mean, if you don't like that one, then he got hit by an 18-wheeler as he was along the freeway. That'll do it too. Uh, and, uh, and it says, and it was known unto all the dwellers at Jerusalem. Again, mark that. You see, it's the dwellers at Jerusalem. We're dealing with the Jews here. Uh, and as so much as this field is called their proper tongue, uh, Akadama, 
uh, which is to say the field of blood, because that's where he died and everything. For it is written in the book of Psalms, uh, let his habitation be desolate, and let no man dwell therein, and his bishopric let another take. Now that'll be Psalms 109, verse 8, and Psalms 69, verse uh, 25. And uh, the bishopric here would be his discipleship or being an apostle. Uh, wherefore of these men which have com uh, companioned with us all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John unto that same day when he was taken up from us must be one be ordained to be witness uh, with us of his resurrection. Now, one of the qualifications of being an apostle is you had to see the Christ after the resurrection. That was one of the qualifications. Now, this is where the book of Acts is so, it, 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 it defines a lot of things for you. And, of course, it defines that today you're going to find preachers, usually in the charismatic world, who claim to be apostles. And, of course, um, the stupid people believe that and follow that, when in actuality, if you would ever get back to a Bible, you would find that he says here that if somebody is going to be an apostle, companion with us as an apostle, uh, you're going to have to you're going to have to be witness of the resurrection. And of course, that uh, that uh, that's what you have here. And they appointed two Joseph and Barnabas, who were surnamed Justice and Matthias. And they prayed and said, Thou, Lord, which knowest of the hearts of all men, show whether of these two thou hast chosen, that he may take part of his ministry and apostleship. And, of course, that will be Psalms 109, verses 5 through 8, where he talks about that. Uh, From which Judas by transgression fell, that he might go to his own place. And they gave forth their lots, to the lot fell upon Matthias, and he was numbered with the eleven the eleven apostles. Now, this is another place where um, the stupidity of education raises its ugly head, in, in, in spite of the clear word of God. I don't know how many times I've heard somebody quote the quote the, the verse back in Proverbs sixteen thirty three, where it talked about casting your lots uh, in, you know, and that's obviously making a reference to somebody gambling. And so they try to take and change the Bible. Notice it doesn't say they cast forth their lots here. It says they gave forth their lots. But some people just can't read English or they have a, an agenda toward the word of God. They weren't, and, and so they say that the, and I've had them, hey, I've, I'm telling you, I've had many, many preachers. I heard a sermon this says that the apostles were out of fellowship with God right here because they were casting their lot to put somebody in Judas's place. Therefore, there was no need to do that, so they're out of fellowship. Believe it or not. And, you know, I, I can, I, I, I can think of five guys, there's probably a hundred, I think of five main guys who I know and I heard say that. The only thing I don't know about these guys 
is how long they were without oxygen when they were born. It's ludicrous. It's absolutely ridiculously stupid for somebody to take that position. It doesn't say they cast forth their lots. They gave their lot. They voted. And that is exactly what you find in every Baptist church that's going to do something, do this or do that. They all take a vote. They have a vote. They vote about everything. They're going to vote about how thick the toilet paper should be. They're going to vote about color choir robes. They're going to vote about should we do this, should we do that. They vote about everything. And, of course, um, this is, this is, you need to see this. Now, let's go back here and put this in its right format. Now, they've already asked the Lord if he's going to restore the kingdom. He doesn't answer them. So they're going to operate, and this is key, they're going to operate with what they know already. You never can go wrong with that. Even if, hey, and I'll tell you why. Even if God, even if that's not the way God is going, which is obviously here, God will honor that and take care of you because you're doing with what you knew. Now, you see this in the book of Acts, all the way through the book of Acts. You find guys like Apollos up there in Acts chapter 19. When he runs into Aquila and Priscilla, he comes to a church service and he gets up and says, can I give a testimony about my salvation? And they say, absolutely. He gets up and starts talking about how he was baptized by John the Baptist. That don't work anymore. So what happens is Quilla Priscilla take him aside and explain to him the way of God in a more excellent way, and he gets saved. My point being, the, chapter, the baptism of John wouldn't get anybody in heaven at that point in time. But notice how God honored what he was doing with what God had given him. And at the right time, God brought him the truth that he needed. You've got to see that. In fact, this is why the book of Acts follows that circle. Before God can go anywhere in the world, he has, you've got Jews all over the place who believed in John, they believed in Jesus, they believed in all of this stuff. All that is off the table now. They have to be told that Jesus now has died on the cross and now salvation is only found through his finished work. And that's why it takes 20, 30 years to move through here. And you see it in the book of Acts where it's changing through here because these people have to be told, like Apollos, what the real bottom line is now. You see, these are the things you got to see in the book of Acts that if you don't see it, man, you ain't going nowhere. And it's an absolute disaster. And this is why people get so messed up in it. Now, the reason why they're doing this is they're going with what they were told to do because they asked the Lord, they asked the Lord if they're going to, uh, if he's going to bring the kingdom back and he doesn't answer them. So they know from back in Matthew, around Matthew chapter 19 or someplace in there, they were told that they are going, when the Lord comes back and brings in his kingdom, that the 12 apostles are going to sit on 12 thrones judging Israel. They're one short. So based on what they know, they're doing what they're doing 
without having a clear-cut answer, and God will always honor you in any confusing situation to go with what you know and allow him to change the game plan for you when he's ready to do that. That is absolutely vital, and it's taught all the way through the book of Acts. So they get Matthias based on that. And the absolute, <laughs> the average dumb Baptist preacher gets up there and says, well, the apostles were out of fellowship. No, they weren't. I ain't too sure about you, but I know they weren't. And it's a thing where they're following with what they were told to do. But the average neo-evangelical guy today has the average Baptist, has the average Christian. They have no clue how the book of Acts goes together. They couldn't connect Matthew coming into this with the apostles if you put a gun to their head. And it's a thing where this is the sad state of affairs with God's people today uh, and most churches today. Uh, They're big on the entertainment side of it, but boy, they're not much on the Bible as far as letting you understand what is really going on here. So verse 24 says, And they prayed and said, uh, Thou, Lord, which knowest the hearts of all men, show whether these two uh, thou hast chosen. Notice they allow God to work through their hearts to cast the right vote. Boy, that's important. It all goes back to your heart relationship with God. What are you going to allow God to do in your through your heart? That's the key. All right, and then it says, and they may take part of this ministry and apostleship from which Judas by transgression fell, that he might go to his own place. Now, that's another key there that we'll get into a little bit later down the line. And that is the fact that you notice that when Judas died, he didn't go to heaven or hell. He went to his own place. And we'll get into that a little bit later on. Uh, but uh, suffices to say, we now know from our past previous studies that there's only two men in the Bible who are called the son of perdition. One of them is Judas and the other one is the Antichrist. And that is because Judas is the Antichrist. Don't worry about what body he came in. It was the spirit. John chapter uh, 6, verse 70, I think it is, tells you clearly that Judas was not a human being. Jesus himself said, Have I not chosen you twelve, and one of you is a devil? 670, I believe it is. And uh, Judas was not a human being. He was the spirit of the Antichrist in a human body who infilled the 12. And notice how that when he betrays him, the devil enters into him for the final act, just like he enters into the Antichrist in the last three and a half years for the final act there against Israel. You can't get away from it. So his own place is probably the bottomless pit is where he goes because he comes out of that bottomless pit um, for the tribulation period. But we'll get into that as we get a little farther on in the book of Acts. And they gave forth, they voted, their lots, and the lot fell upon Matthews, and he was numbered with the 11 apostles. So now they're up to full speed again. And they did this because, I say it again, they're operating with what they know. And I cannot impress upon you the reason why you learn the Bible the reason why you learn the principles, the reason why you invest your life in the Word of God is not just for what you got to go through today. It's for when you have to go through down the line and you don't know the clear answer, you have 
before you what you do know to do. And most of God's people don't have that. And this is the tragedy today. Of, yeah, yes. So, you have to say it loud, Jenny, because we don't have a mic here. Okay. Um, in verse 22, when they're kind of laying out the credentials of how they're going <clears> to <throat> pick somebody, they're talking about it has to be from, at least they had to be with them from the baptism of John, which none of them were there when Christ was baptized with John. And even Matthew doesn't join their group until, you know, after the sermon or the is that what it is, the Sermon on the Mount in chapter, Matthew chapter 5, when he's kind of laying out that stuff. So I'm just wondering what they, how they got that. Well, what, is, what he's saying there in verse 22, he says, verse 21, Wherefore these men which have accompanied with us all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us. So, and then it says, beginning from the baptism of John under the same day that he was taken up. What he's saying in verse 22 is that's where this all starts. It doesn't necessarily mean that they had to, uh, all of them knew who John the Baptist was. I mean, obviously, John the Baptist was as prevalent to the Jews as, as anything. So they all knew who his ministry was. They may not have been down there with him at the seashore or the river baptizing, <clears throat> but they knew who he was. So in that context, they were there from that beginning. Not necessarily that they were part of his entourage of, of doing what he was doing, but great question on that. Uh, all right, so now we're going to move into chapter 2, and this is the day of Pentecost. Now, let me give you this too, and you've heard me say this. I've told you before that all history, as all the Bible, is nothing more, and here again, if you get these simple things down and you get them into your world and you make them part of your daily understanding of things, the Bible becomes a lot easier to grasp. I've told you from day one that the, the whole history of the world, and certainly the Bible, is God moving in a direction to accomplish what he wants to accomplish and then the devil moving to counter that. Nowhere is that clearer than in the book of Acts. Now, I'm going to give them to you. So write these down. Put them at the top of the page. I got mine at the top of page um, Acts 2 there, where Peter's sermon on the day of Pentecost. But here's what you got. In Acts chapter 2, which we're about to get into, we see God moving. Acts chapter 2, verse 41. Then by the time we get to Acts chapter 4, verse 1, we see the devil move to counter it. We see God moving again in Acts chapter 4, verse 33. And then we see the devil moving in opposition to that move in Acts chapter 5, verse 17. We see in Acts chapter 5, verse 15, God moving again. And then we see in Acts chapter 5, verse 40, the devil moving to stop it. We see it in Acts chapter 6, verse 8, God moving to do what he's going to do And then the devil moves in Acts chapter 7, verse 54, to stop what God is doing. In the first seven chapters, it's nothing more than a volleyball game. It's God moving to do something with Israel and the devil moving in to stop it. Now, this, it is so clear in those seven chapters. But that is the, that is the, that is the taste, that is the case, the test case all down through history. Certainly all through the Bible. Everything you're going to see in history 
everything you're going to see in the Bible, because the God of the Bible is God of history, is God has a plan and he moves in a direction. Obviously, the greatest one is Adam and Eve in the garden. Uh, it's a thing where, you know, God had a plan. He puts them down. The devil shows up to destroy it. It's true of everything in history. And I'm going to take it one step further. If you're not careful, it'll be true of everything in your life. You get a great victory today. The devil will try to take it from you tomorrow. He may not even wait till tomorrow. He may do it this afternoon. Yeah, Danny. Uh, we list those first two again. The first two oh, yes, sir. Yeah. In Acts chapter 2, verse 41, God moves. And in Acts chapter 4, verse 1, the devil moves. Yeah. And so he'll do it with you and me. You know, that's why the greatest, you know, God's people make a terrible mistake. And that is that they, they want to major on the mountain peaks in their life of great things with God. And that's, and I understand that. And I thank God that he does great things in your life, but you never want to focus on the mountain peaks because after the mountain, the mountain, there's a valley. And you never want to just live on the mountain peaks of what God does. You want to stay even with God all the time. No mountain peaks for a Christian. Every day should be a steady relationship with Christ that just brings ultimate blessings. And you don't go from mountain peak to mountain peak. And uh, it's a thing where for you and for me, we just live a life that's even every day. And that'll save you a lot of heartache and a lot of trouble. Because I'm telling you, You know, it's, it, the devil's going to try to do, and you see it, I mean, golly, if you're working with people here, how many times have we seen it? Some kid, some guy or gal, I don't care which one, they'll come here, you know, and they'll get saved and they really get plugged in and they start going good. And what happens? His girlfriend from 20 years ago suddenly calls him on the phone and wants to hook up again or boyfriend. Or they meet somebody out there at, you know, ChristianMinglingMeatMarket.com. And, you know, they, 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 and that, that's the devil putting it into it. You know, and the, and the deal of it is, that is so frustrating. But you know, as well as I know, in 90% of the cases, you can't tell them that. I mean, they're not going to get it. I mean, you, you got to, God has to get into that thing somehow and work it out. Because if you sat down and say, well, you can't talk to this person anymore, it, it ain't going, they're not, far enough along to get that. Now, there are some cases. I've had cases where the guy was pretty sharp and the gal was pretty sharp and they came in and said, you know what, I'm not letting this person take what I've got here. Praise the Lord. But that doesn't happen very often. So it's a thing where, you know, you you, want to see that through these seven, first seven chapters, you want to mark those in your Bible as a a test case. But that's true of everything you're going to find. Everything you're going to find, including your life and my life. Okay, verse 1. Now, when the day of Pentecost was fully come, they were all with one accord in one place. Now, boy, I don't know of another verse that's been uh, more messed with than this verse right here. And obviously, there's a denomination out there called Pentecostals. And uh, they're called Pentecostals because uh, of Acts chapter 2, verse 1. And uh, they, uh, they, they take their name from this. And I, I, I'm sure that the, I'm giving the benefit of the doubt. I'm sure the majority of them are really, really wonderful people, good people. I'm sure they are. Uh, but um, good, wonderful people, if you spend any time with people in life, good, wonderful people, uh, many times they they really come up short when it comes on brains. 
And uh, it's a thing where uh, this is how the devil takes Scripture. And when you don't get the context of the book, this is what happens. First of all, here's what they would have you to believe. When the day of Pentecost was fully come, they were all in one accord in one place. Now, they would, first of all, because they want to call themselves Pentecostals based on Pentecost. They want to call themselves Pentecostals, and they want you to believe that this is where tongues begin for all Christians. And this is why they run it back to Acts 2 and call themselves Pentecostals from Pentecost. And they completely have no clue. I have never met a charismatic in my life ever who could take two scripture verses and put them together. They are the most inept, stupid people when it comes to the Bible. And it's, and it's because of things just like this. And so the first thing they want you to believe, and I've heard them preach this, that all oh, the day of Pentecost, we go back to the day of Pentecost. That's why we're Pentecostals and why we speak in tongues and have the Holy Ghost. And this is where the Holy Spirit of God fell on the church. And, uh, you know, so from here, it just, it, it started with the church here and here we are today. Okay. Let's read it now. Just a little bit of intelligence. Not a lot. Now, when the day of Pentecost was fully come, they were all with one accord in one place. Now, I would ask myself, who was? The Charismatics would tell you that is everybody uh, in Christianity. Verse 26, and I hate to keep going back to the Bible. I really do. Verse 26 of the preceding chapter, and they gave forth their lots and fell upon Matthias, and they were numbered with the 11 apostles. And when the day of Pentecost was fully come, they were all in one accord in one place. Who was? The 11 apostles. This isn't all of humanity of Christianity. The church hasn't even been, in, even been revealed yet. Now, the second thing here is... <sighs> And when the day of Pentecost was fully come, you know what happened one year after this very day? Nothing. You know what happened two years after this very day? Not one thing. When it says on the day of Pentecost was fully come, Pentecost, here it comes, I'm sorry, is an Old Testament Jewish feast. Pentecost hasn't, will not, never shall, hopefully will never be connected in any way, shape, or form with the church. The day of Pentecost was the feast of Pentecost, which was given to the nation of Israel in the Old Testament. And the Holy Spirit of God came on that day to represent what Pentecost represented in the Old Testament to the Jew. There isn't one New Testament Christian in this chapter. There isn't one New Testament Christian in the first seven chapters. I'm not sure there's one in chapter 8 until you get to the middle of it. There, there, is, there is no church like your church and my church. Nothing here is even connected to the New Testament local church that you and I are part of, the spiritual body of Christ. This is an Old Testament Jewish feast, the day of Pentecost, that only the 11 apostles are in one accord. And suddenly... 
There came a sound from heaven as a, a rushing mighty wind, and it filled the house when they were sitting. And they were all, and, and there appeared unto them cloven tongues like as a fire, and sat upon each of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Ghost and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now, this is where the charismatic again, if, if the charismatic goes wrong anywhere, he goes wrong in Acts chapter 2. And of course, this is, this is exactly where you're at here. And this is exactly uh, what you're doing. Um, you're going to find that in Acts chapter 1 verse 4, when they're speaking with tongues, this is a fulfillment, and I, again, if you're a charismatic listening to this or you're here this morning, I apologize for keep going back to the Bible. This is a prophecy found in Isaiah chapter 28, verse 11, given to the nation of Israel. It was never intended for the Christian. I don't need all the other verses in the New Testament. I just need to go back where the first place you find tongues in the Bible isn't in the book of Acts. The first place you find prophesied about tongues is in Isaiah chapter 28, verse 11. And it isn't to the Gentiles. It's to the nation of Israel. And so, that's the first thing. The second thing is, verse 5, get your little chatter marker ready. And there were dwelling at Jerusalem Jews. Now you want to mark that. There's only Jews here. There are no Gentiles. Only Jews. Devout men out of under every nation of heaven. Now what does that mean? It means that these Jews were out of every nation based on the captivity of 606 B.C. and 5. 89 B.C. with the northern tribes and the southern tribes. When the captivity takes place, these Jews are taken from Jerusalem. They go to Babylon. Some of them get transported to Samaria. They go to Assyria. And over the next 400 years, they scatter everywhere. And many of them have lost their own native tongue. I would say the proof of that is that some of you here are Italian descent. Some of you are German descent. Uh, and you're three or four generations ago, maybe five, your parents came over on a boat from Europe, and you're, you're Italian descent, or you're German descent, or you're, you know, uh, Russian descent, or whatever. But you probably do not speak your native tongue. So in just three generations, or four generations for most of the people, they have lost their native tongue, but they all speak the language of where they are now, and that, of course, for you is, is, uh, is, is English in America. So this is the same problem you had back here. These Jews have been out of the land for over 400 years, and they have adapted to their culture, and now we've had what? Depending on how you call a generation in the Bible of families, maybe 10, 12, 15 generations. And I guarantee you, well, we know it from the text here that they have lost their native tongue, but yet... They're still Jews out of every nation under the captivity, the dispersion. And now they have to get the message because they are Jews. And this is a message to Jews, the nation of Israel, no matter where you're at. It's just God covering all the bases. Now let's go on. Now when he was noised abroad, <coughs> the multitude came together and were confounded <coughs> 
because they heard every man, uh, they heard every man, uh, excuse me, that every man heard them speak in his own language. And they were all amazed and marveled, saying one to another, Behold, are all not these which speak Galileans? And now how we hear every man in our own tongue. Now that is the second thing you want to get that a charismatic should never get. First of all, Mark verse 6 at the end in his own language, and then up then verse 8, every man uh, in his own tongue. Tongues are always a language. This idea that it's fee-fi-fo-fum, I spell the blood of an Englishman, has nothing to do with the Bible. This heavenly spiritual language that people concoct is nothing more than the spirit of falsehood and the spirit of deception. And uh, it's a thing where, but this is where God's people are. The, the farther we get from the Bible and the closer we get to the rapture, the farther people are going to get from the Word of God. And now we come to the place that in most cases, not just the charismatics, God's people, in most cases, people care nothing about what the Bible says anymore. It's what you want to do. And, uh, you know, I've had charismatics tell me, I don't care what the Bible says. You can't deny my experience. Well, your experience is under Ezekiel chapter 13 that God gave you a lie to believe because that's what you wanted. But that's your deal. And it's a thing where, you know, that's just the way that it, that's just the way the wind blows. And so the next thing you want to realize that tongues will always be a language. And to prove that, verse 8 and how we hear every man in our own tongue wherein we were born. And then what he does in 9, 10, and 11, he actually gives you the nations from which he's talking about, their language and tongues. Parthians, Medes, the Amalites, dwellers at Mesopotamia, and in Judea, Cappadocia, Pontius, Asia, Fergama, Philanthia, Egypt, parts of Libya, Cyrene, strangers of Rome, Jews, and proselytes, Cretes, Arabians, we do there here speak on our own tongues the wonderful works of God. Now, this is what you've got to know about where we're at right here. This is what's happening. Acts chapter 1 through 7, he has to reach the Jews. He has to reach the Jews with the final message. That message ends in Acts chapter 7 with the preaching of Stephen. And when they reject Stephen, they lose the kingdom temporarily till they go through the tribulation period. But when he comes, this is the problem that the Holy Spirit of God is facing. He's facing now that the Jews for over 400, 500 years have been out of the land and been dispersed to all these other nations. They have lost their native tongue. They no longer speak Hebrew. So now he has to get the message of God to them. So he starts with the 11 apostles who were given the commission in Matthew chapter 10. Now they're going to expand that to the Jews of the disposition uh, and the deportation. So he supernaturally, when the Holy Spirit of God comes, he gives them the power to speak in tongues, which now has been defined as another language to be able to reach the Jews. And I emphasize not the Gentiles, the Jews. And, of course, the charismatic would have you to believe that this is all taking place now uh, in their church because it took place in this church. And completely, completely, completely off the wall in any way, shape, or form of any kind of relevance to anything that they're doing. 
So now you have an understanding where the charismatics get off track, or anybody who speaks in tongues. They take it from Pentecost and call themselves Pentecostals. They call themselves charismatics because the charismatic is a, is a Latin word that means gifted one or all-knower. <laughs> yeah. And then, of course, you know, then they, they, they just go from there. And it's a thing where they all base it out of Acts chapter 2. And, of course, uh, they, uh, it all goes back to them not understanding the book of Acts. Now, I'll just tell you this. In your life, as you work through, deal with people, <clears throat> you're going to deal with charismatics. Probably most of you already have. You can save your breath with this. This isn't going to change most of their mind. Unless you get one that's just getting into it and he hasn't been indoctrinated and hasn't been demon-possessed yet, uh, you might have a chance. But boy, when they get into this spirit of falsehood and uh, it gets to, to the level of demonic, uh, it's a thing where you're not going to touch them. And uh, the, I would say that the charismatic movement next to the Catholic Church is probably the most demonic organization on the face of the planet. And uh, the only thing that could bump into them in the middle of the night would be the Church of Christ. But uh, they're all messed up. But I would say as far as what we claim in Christianity, they claim to be believers, and maybe some of them are, probably are. Uh, But you're talking about an organization that is about as demonic as you're ever going to find. And uh, so, and you talk about people with a spirit of falsehood and deception. Brother, you got it. So then he lists these places in, the, in 8, 9, 10, and 11. And uh, verse 12, now you know why it's going this way. And they were all amazed and were in doubt, saying one to another, what meaneth this? Other mocking said, these men are full of new wine. Now that poses a problem for, for, for so many of God's people. And when I find somebody, and I, I give young Christians the benefit of the doubt because you're learning but when you find an older Christian that doesn't know what this verse means, you know what it tells me? It tells me you're doing no personal work at all. Not a thing. And somebody would say, well, well you know, how can you get drunk on new wine? You can't, bugwit. That is the point. <laughs> Everybody out there knew that Christian didn't drink fermented alcohol, but they did drink grape juice, new wine. So it's a it's a disparity. It's a it's a cut. It is a it is it is a falsehood making fun of them. Oh, you guys! I'll put it in a thing. Oh, you guys don't drink like we do. You just drink new wine, grape juice. You must have got drunk on your grape juice. That's what they're saying. Okay? It's a derogatory, and most people don't see that because they don't do any personal work. How many times have you tried to witness to somebody, uh, you know, and uh, they'll take something that you believe and make a derogatory mark about it uh, to justify uh, that they don't want to believe what you're saying? It happens all the time. In other words, when it comes to human nature, it never changes. We suddenly think because we're in the book of Acts that this people here don't think like people do today. You're out of your mind. Human nature never changes. And these people today are doing exactly what they will do to you today when you try to, you know, when you try to talk to them about, uh, um, you know, biblical things. So, and notice it says they're mocking. So that should be a clue for you. They're mocking. Now, verse 14, here's a paragraph mark. And uh, here we go. But Peter, you need to mark that. This is message number two. We've seen message number one. This is 
message number two. But Peter, standing up with the 11, he tells you one more time, there's only 11 here. Peter, standing up with the 11, lifted up his voice and said unto them, now get your yellow pencil ready, you're going to need it. But Peter, standing up with the 11, lifted up his voice and said unto them, Ye men of Judea, mark that one, and all ye that dwell at Jerusalem, mark that one, be ye known unto you this day, and hearken to my words. For these are not drunken as ye suppose, seeing it is about the third hour of the day. Happy hour hadn't started yet. And it came, it shall come to pass in the last days, saith God, that I will pour out my spirit upon all flesh, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams, and on my servants shall all my handmaids will I pour out in those days my spirit, and they shall prophesy. Now, having said that, the charismatic will take that, and he will tell you that this is a promise to him and to his children. And of course, uh, uh, this is absolutely, again, uh, has nothing to do with anything, and a charismatic couldn't figure enough his life depended on it. When it says in verse 16, these is that which was spoken by the prophet Joel. Uh, you probably couldn't find three Christians on the face of the planet who understands where that at in Joel. It's in Joel chapter 2. It's in Joel chapter 2, running from verse 28 to 32. And when you go back to, well, let's just go back to it. Come on, I will just do it, do it upright here. I want you to, don't want you going out of here think you didn't get your money's worth. Joel chapter 2, verse 28. Well, let's back up here in verse uh, 23 so we can get a little run at it. Be glad then, ye children of Zion, New Testament Christians, and rejoice in the Lord your God, for he hath given you the former former, uh, rain moderately and will cause to come down for you the rain, the former rain, the latter rain. Oh, what's that context? Jew in the tribulation. See how this works? Charismatic couldn't get that for anything in this world. And the floors uh, and the flo- uh, and the floors shall be full of wheat, and the fats shall overflow with wine and oil. And I will restore to you the years that the locust hath eaten, the cankerworth and the caterpillar and the and the palmer worm, uh, and my great army which I sent among you. And ye shall eat in plenty and be satisfied, and praise the name of the Lord your God uh, that hath dealt wonderfully with you. And my people shall never be ashamed. Uh, it's all Christians, isn't it? Oh, I don't know. Look at verse twenty-seven. And ye shall know that I am in the midst of the church. <laughs> It's Israel. It's Israel. Now, why can't somebody get that? Verse 28, And there shall come to pass afterward that I will, here it comes, pour out my spirit upon all flesh, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, your old men shall dream dreams, and your young men shall see visions. And also upon the servants and upon the handmaids, and in those days will I pour out my spirit. Now, 
we stopped short of this back in Acts 2, but we'll go ahead and read it here, and then we'll go back. And I will show wonders in the heavens and in the earth, blood and fire and pillars of smoke, and the sun shall be turned into darkness. That's Revelation 6, 12. Uh, and the moon into blood, and their great and terrible day of the Lord. And it shall come to pass that whatsoever shall call, uh, that whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Is that what it said? Is that what it says? That's how charismatic will read it. Let me read it again. Maybe I got it wrong. And it shall, whosoever shall call on the name of the Lord shall be saved. For in Mount Zion and in Jerusalem shall be salvation. No, it's deliverance. This is dealing with the nation of Israel at the second coming of Christ. They're getting delivered. As the Lord has said, uh, and in a remnant whom the Lord shall call. It's the nation of Israel. So you see, this is more proof of what I told you earlier that in Acts chapter 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, he's dealing with the nation of Israel, and if they will accept what he's going to give them, then he will bring in the second coming of Christ, and there'll be no church age or whatever as we knew it, know it. And the proof of this is, he quotes Joel chapter 2. So, ah, see, this is where Acts gets tricky if you don't follow it the way I'm giving it to you. So the coming of the Holy Spirit of God hindsight, living where we know, we see it as the coming of the promise of John chapter 16, and these people got sealed with the Holy Spirit of God. But that's not how God saw it at that point in time, even though that was true. God saw it as the pouring out of the Spirit based on Joel chapter 2 to get them ready for the second coming of Christ, to get them delivered. It could go either way. This is why he does not answer them in chapter 1 when they ask him the question, will I restore the kingdom to Israel at this time? He isn't committing himself. So things are happening. We now, 2,000 years later, can look back and see the whole picture. They couldn't. And God is keeping his cards close to his chest and he's not showing them his hand till he sees what Israel is going to do. And then it moves on. Nobody was the wiser till we get into the New Testament, get our Bible, and then he reveals his whole plan to us, which nobody can get anyhow. So that's what you're looking at. Okay, back to Acts chapter 2 here. And it shall come to pass in the last days, saith the Lord, verse 17, I will pour up my spirit upon all flesh. Uh, now that's another thing there that you need to see if you don't have that marked. It's on all flesh. Your flesh didn't get, the Spirit of God didn't get poured on your flesh. It got into your soul. It didn't get into your flesh. You got spiritually circumcised your soul from your flesh. Spirit of God didn't get poured out on your flesh, but it does in a tribulation period because they don't get spiritually circumcised. You see how little things like that just build into your mongous Bible doctrines? But you got to catch the words, guys. You got to catch the words. And will pour out upon all flesh, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, uh, and your old men shall dream dreams. Um, I always like that, and I'm living proof of that because you know the you young guys are always sitting down and watching the television. Us old men are always falling asleep and dreaming it. I get it. Uh, and on my servant shall, on my handmaids will I pour out. Uh, in those days. Now, that's a, another word you want to mark, and I've given you this word before in your keywords, those days. 
I would say 95% of the time, if not all of the time, when you find a phrase those days in your Bible, stop. The definitive on it is Matthew chapter 25 and 24. Uh, but you, uh, those days always will bring you up to the tribulation period. And if certainly, if you haven't gotten it by then, verse 19, and I will show wonders in the heaven above, the signs of the earth, blood, smoke, and all that's Revelation chapter 6 in the tribulation period. Uh, before, now, and then here's a kicker. Uh, before the great and notable rapture of the church. See, day of the Lord. Day of the Lord. Tomorrow in our sermon, I'm going to teach you, and among other things, I'm going to teach you the five prominent days that you need to learn in your Bible. There's five days concerning you in your Bible you need to understand, and we'll deal with it tomorrow. This one's the day of the Lord. And it shall come past that whosoever shall call upon the Lord shall be saved. Ah, you see how he changed that? Back in Joel, it was delivered. Here it's saved. See, that's the beauty of the Bible. Back in Joel, it told you they got delivered, but over in Romans chapter 11 at the second coming of Christ as a nation, it says, and all Israel shall be saved. Both words work well, but he didn't use say back in Joel, so a charismatic couldn't get that and make it what he wanted it to say, but he made it saved in Acts chapter 2 because you and I know Romans chapter 11, which says, and all Israel shall be saved as a nation. You can't beat the book, man. That book covers its bases, and if this is why, if you, I keep telling you this, if you guys don't stay exact with that book, you'll get screwed up. You'll get some whacked out teaching, some whacked out doctrine, something off the wall that has nothing to do with any consistency in the Bible. Why? You have to stay exact. And I can't stress that enough. All right, get your yellow pencil out. Here we go. Verse 22, ye men of Israel, there it is again, hear these words, Jesus of Nazareth, a man approved of God among you by miracles and wonders and signs, which God did by him in the midst of you, as you yourself also know. That's all Matthew right there, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, to him uh, being delivered by the determinate counsel. Now I'm going to stop right here for a minute, and you need to mark verse 23 in yellow or red, and along to the side of it. You want to put the uh, determinate counsel is bad. And you're going to find that, uh, that every time you find the word counsel in the Bible, like a meeting of people together, it's always against the Lord. It's never for him. And you're going to find again in the first seven chapters of Acts, and I'll give them to you as we go through, that there are four counsels in the first seven chapters, and every one of them is against Christ. Hence, the World Council of Churches, the National Council of Churches. Um, you know, it's a, but a determinate council. Now, that's a key word, determinate council. They were determined to keep him from doing what he was going to do. And foreknowledge of God, ye have taken, and by wicked hands have crucified and slain, whom God hath raised up, having loosed the pains of death, because it was not possible that he should be holden of it. For David speaketh concerning him, I foresaw the Lord always before my face, for he is on my right hand, and I should not be moved. This will be Psalm 16, verse 8. Therefore did my heart rejoice, and my tongue was glad. Moreover, also my flesh shall rest in hope. Notice he doesn't say the soul. 
This is David talking in the Old Testament, and in the Old Testament, your soul and your flesh are stuck together. So it's proper. Because thou wilt not leave my soul in hell, neither will thou suffer thy holy one to see corruption. Ah, we've jumped into a prophecy about Christ. And of course, um, this is exactly the promise. Thou hast made known to me the ways of life. Thou shalt make me full of joy with thy countenance. And then get your pencil out again. Verse 29, men and brethren, Jews, let me freely speak to you of the patriarch David and how that he is both dead and buried and his sepulcher is with us unto this day. Therefore, being a prophet and knowing that God has sworn an oath to him uh, that he, the fruit of his loins according to his flesh would raise up Christ to sit on his throne. David's in the line of Christ. He, seeing this uh, before, spake of the resurrection of Christ, uh, that his soul was not left in hell, uh, neither his flesh did he see corruption. That this Jesus hath God raised up, whereof we are all witnesses. Now, he's preaching to them about who Christ was, going back to David, to use David as an authority on Christ as the Messiah. So you want to know that. Uh, this Jesus hath God raised up, wherewith we are all witnesses. Therefore, uh, being by the right hand of God exalted and having received of the Father the promise of the Holy Ghost, John 16, in uh, uh, Isaiah 28, uh, he hath shed forth this which ye now see and hear. For David is not ascended into heavens, but he saith himself, The Lord said unto my Lord, Sit thou on my right hand. That's Psalms 110. Until I make thine enemies thy footstool. Prophecy about Christ typified by David coming back at the second coming in the millennium and making his enemies his footstool. Therefore, I'll get your little pen out again. Therefore, let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God hath made that same Jesus whom ye have crucified, both Lord and Christ. This is the theme of Peter's five messages to the Jews. Now, we're going to hold up right here because I want you to get everything I told you before we jump into verse 38, which is, it puts the nutcracker suite look like a Sousa march. It is really a tough nut to crack, and we're going to get into it next time in Acts chapter 2, verse 38. And uh, so we're going to hold up there in verse 35.